what's your approach for building a campfire? Everyone has their own approach. What's yours? You know, is it the TP method? Is it the log cabin method? Is it the lean-to? Or is it the, you know, throw everything in the fire, douse it in gasoline, light a match method? That's my personal favorite. But no matter how it is that you get the fire going, it's only going to last for as long as you tend to it. It's only going to last as long as you tend to it. Of course, there's going to be times where you can sit back and relax, enjoy the fire, be soothed by its warmth. But if you'd like to keep enjoying it, you're going to need to add more wood. You're going to need to reposition the logs from time to time, move the embers around. And if you stop paying attention, it'll slowly burn out and turn into smoke and ashes. We're now in the third week of our sermon series in the book of Hebrews. And what we're going to discover today and what we'll see again and again and again throughout the letter is that the author believes there is no passive pursuit of Jesus. There is no passive pursuit of Jesus. And whether the church he's writing to recognizes it or not, they're at a point of decision. It's time to get up and tend to the fire. Otherwise, the flames of faith will dissolve into smoke and ashes. And he wants the church to get up and pay closer attention to the message of the gospel, even closer attention than they've previously given to it. If you think you're close, you can be closer still. So here's the question we need to ask as a community this morning. Why should we pay even closer attention to Jesus? If you have a Bible, I invite you to open it up to Hebrews in the back of the Bible. Uh, if you have a phone, use that. If you don't own a Bible, you can take one of our gray Bibles home. It's our gift to you. We would like you to, to take that. And everything you need is on the screen too. Hebrews chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we've heard lest we begin to drift away from it. We begin with the word, therefore. You don't start a sentence with therefore. You don't walk up to someone and say, therefore, hello, unless you had a, a dope strut and then you said, therefore, hello. That would be awesome. But otherwise, if you start a sentence with therefore, with no previous content, it's confusing. Everything up until this point in the letter from chapter one, verse one, until now, it's been the introduction of Hebrews. It's been the introduction. And now he's moving into his first call to action, therefore. So in other words, in light of everything I've said so far in this introduction, here's how you should live in light of it. In light of Jesus, the Son of God, the King who's greater than angels, enthroned at the right hand of God, who created the world and sustains it, our great high priest who's made purification for sins. In light of all of this, therefore. Therefore, we must pay closer attention to what we've heard, lest we drift away from it. There is no neutral pursuit of Jesus. You're either moving closer toward him or drifting away. You see, the author, he doesn't call us to pay close attention, but closer attention. It's not enough to bank on what you already know because you're pursuing a person, not an idea. If Jesus was just an idea you could master, you could learn all there is to know about him and you could stop there, but he's not. He's a living Lord and so you need to pay closer attention to the message about him day after day after day. What's interesting is the command to pay closer attention is in the active voice. It involves putting in effort. Dallas Willard is a great author and theologian, uh, and he once wrote, the path of spiritual growth in the riches of Christ is not a passive one, 
Grace is not opposed to effort. It's opposed to earning. Effort is action. Earning is attitude. Paying closer attention requires effort. It's active. But drifting away, it's passive. It doesn't take any effort to drift away on your part. In other words, what the author is telling us is, if you don't press in, if you don't pay closer attention, you will drift away. It's one or the other. So if you think you can park your faith in neutral, that's the first step towards drifting away. There's a nautical theme going on in the words he uses here. So get out your nautical theme, Pashima Afghan, and think through this with me. Drifting away is like a boat that slowly slips out of its mooring. That hasn't been docked appropriately, hasn't been tied up. They didn't drop the anchor. Now, everyone might be on board and enjoying life, and everything feels the same as it felt when they first docked. But slowly and surely, they're drifting away from the dock. Now, when you couple this with the word neglect in verse 3, the author is pointing out a gradual, unthinking movement away from faith. He's not talking about people who just throw faith out the window and abandon Jesus. He's talking about the unintentional result of neglect. If you neglect any relationship for too long, it will deteriorate. If you put in no effort whatsoever, what can you expect the quality of that relationship to be? It's the same with the Lord. Now, to be fair, sometimes God is asking you to stay put, to stop, to rest. And I don't want to overlook this because if someone, if, if this is you, if you're burnt out and you've been recovering or you've been in, if you've been hurt and you're, you're intentionally slowing down, you're processing a physical pain or emotional pain or spiritual pain or you're recovering some, from some sort of trauma, the act of faith is resting and staying still. So this is not speaking to you. Don't think that suddenly you have to start pushing yourself harder and harder when God is actually telling you to stay put. If you actually pushed yourself, that would be drifting away instead of resting in Christ. But for others, you have the opposite problem. You've put in the effort and you're getting tired of it. You've put in the effort to following Jesus and you're tired of it. You can check the right boxes. You've prayed the prayers. You've read the books. You've gone to the meetings. You feel like you should have a closer experience with God, but you go through all of these things and it just feels like monotony. If your efforts to draw closer to Jesus are tiring you out, it's because they're not effort. They're attempts to earn. And as a result of all your effort to earn God's approval, to earn God's attention, to earn God's favor, it's causing you to drift away into resentment or frustration, maybe even doubt. Because you think God owes you, or you think there's something you have to do to get God's attention. By and large, I'm not convinced anyone signs up for the Christian faith with the intention of drifting away. But it happens. And at first, it might be subtle, undetected, but it, over time it leads to apathy and unresponsiveness and aloofness towards Jesus, where you hear the news about him and it seems like old news. And so we have to ask ourselves, are we drifting away? And the author wants to wake us up. He wants us to pay attention. And perhaps you've never paid attention to this message before, and you're wondering, well, why should I pay any attention at all? And the author has anticipated this question. 
If we pay closer attention to his message, look at verses two and four. The author writes, for, in other words, here's why. Here's why you should pay even closer attention. For, since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how, sh how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? You should pay close attention, closer attention than you've ever given to anything in the world before. You should pay even closer attention to this message because how will you escape if you neglect it? What? That's his rationale? Pay attention because if you don't, you won't escape. Generally speaking, this is our issue with religion. It uses fear to motivate people. And maybe you're thinking, I thought Christianity was supposed to be different. I thought we're, you claim to be a religion of love and peace and harmony and grace and forgiveness. Why is this author of Hebrews inciting fear in people? And generally speaking, most of us don't think fear should be used, right? Show of hands. Fear, why? Because it's manipulative. And when it comes to following Jesus, hear me on this, your primary motivation for following Jesus cannot be fear. That won't sustain you. You can't be putting in the effort out of fear alone. It won't last. It won't guarantee a lifelong pursuit of Jesus. But if you're drifting away, if you're careening towards an edge, fear can wake you up. Consider global warming. The science is legitimately terrifying. Anytime I read an article, it makes me want to be a climate change denier because then I can sleep at night. But when you read these articles, the truth they present is fearsome. And the authors of these articles count on the truth's ability to invoke fear in hopes that it might move you toward change. And so they draw out what might be the results in the long run. Floods and droughts, intensified fires and tornadoes and hurricanes, a prospect, you know, the prospect of major portions of the, the coasts being uninhabitable, a refugee crisis on our own land. It would be entirely inappropriate to remove fear from this reality. You know, if someone said to you, look, the universe as you know it is going to end, you're not going to have a planet to live on, your entire habitat is at risk, Feel of that as you may. That is not appropriate. This is a fearsome reality. We're heading towards catastrophic consequences. Do you see? Sometimes the use of fear is appropriate as a motivator. It would actually be inappropriate not to call out the fear in this. Especially when fear is related to truth. If we should fear climate change, and we should, how much more should we fear the truth the author of Hebrews implies? If the message angels delivered in the Mosaic law had consequences ranging from fines and sacrifices even to death, how much more will be the consequence if we reject the message we've received in Jesus? What exactly is the author implying here? The implication is that every single person will be held to account before the creator of the universe. God will judge each and every single one of us at the end of time. And this is a fearsome reality and truth. Ah, you say. This is just the Old Testament God. Old Testament God, judgy God. We're New Testament God. God is the loving God, God of love. 
There was a skeptical scholarly movement in the 80s and 90s called the Jesus Seminar. And their aim was to discover the truly historical words and deeds of Jesus. And at the end of it all, the most shared conclusion of this group of of scholars of 150 was that Jesus was a failed end times prophet. Now, I don't agree with them. But what I find interesting is that the most skeptical historical research tells us that the harsher statements from Jesus are likely to be his most genuine words. So if you're trying to remove all the difficult things Jesus said or discredit them somehow, you're actually removing what are the most authentic parts of Jesus. If you say these are just words that others put in his mouth, he didn't actually say it. He only spoke of love and acceptance. He wasn't judging. You're standing above all scholarship, conservative and liberal. You either get the Jesus of the historical record or you don't get Jesus at all. You'll end up only having a Jesus mangled in your own image. And then at the end of the day, who are you worshiping? You're worshiping yourself dressed up as Jesus. Jesus speaks about judgment and hell more than any other person in the Bible. And we can pretend, we can't, we don't, we're not given the option to pretend like it's not a matter of concern to Jesus. In one of his most sobering warnings, Jesus said, do not be afraid of those who can kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. There it is. Even Jesus is saying we should be afraid of God's judgment because God has the ability to destroy both our body and our soul. Now, I'm about as comfortable talking about hell as you are listening to me right now. Hell is not the whole message, but it's part of the message. When people make hell the whole message, when they get on their bullhorns in public and preach about it, when it's all they talk about when they talk about Jesus, that's unhealthy. But it's equally unhealthy when we erase hell and let it have no part in the message at all. It's not the whole message, but it is part of the message. And there's a variety of views on hell that range within orthodoxy, and I don't have time to get into all of them, but whatever view you may hold, eternal torment, temporary punishment, and then annihilation, eternal death, you're just debating intensity. And I get that it matters, but don't lose sight of the common underlying view. Hell is not desirable for any person. Whatever hell is, at the very least, it is eternal separation from God, from love, from life, from light, from all that is good and right. And if the thought of hell doesn't cause a pit in your stomach, A, you're not listening, and B, you probably shouldn't talk about it. But because Jesus is so full of compassion toward us, Hell causes a pit in his stomach, which is why he talks about it more than anyone else in the Bible. Jesus, he's declared, will be held to account before God. Every thought and secret of our hearts will be exposed. Those things that only you know about, God knows about. Every action and inaction will be assessed. And if you drift away from the one person who can deliver you from the judgment that is to come, if you ignore him, if you deny him like a climate change denier, how will you escape the consequences? The implication is that you won't. No one can deliver you except for Jesus. The author has our attention at this point, but he invites us to pay closer attention still. 
Look at verses three through four. The author continues. The message was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard. Well, God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. He's saying you should pay closer attention to Jesus, not just because of the consequences if you don't, but also because of the quality of the message. It's reliable, it's truthful, it's worth your complete attention and closer examination. But is it even possible to know if what the scriptures portray is actually what took place? The author of Hebrews believes so. But where does this conviction come from? For him, it comes from the source and from the witnesses. It comes from the source. And he says here, the source of the message is God himself. God spoke through his son. The message was declared first by the Lord. And as I said in the first week of this series, Jesus went around saying things you can't say unless you're God. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. If you've heard me, you've heard the Father. If you've seen what I've done, you've seen the Father acting in the world. He claimed to be God in person, God in the flesh. And so if you hear Jesus speaking, you hear God speaking. And so the author of Hebrews says, you can trust this message because it was declared first by the Lord. But then there were witnesses, eyewitnesses, who saw and heard and experienced all that Jesus said and did. And they didn't soften the uncomfortable claims Jesus made. You know, nowhere in the Bible do we get, and then Jesus said he was God, but look, we know this is uncomfortable, and so if you want to take it or leave it, hey, take it or leave it. No, they just report what he said and what he did. These same eyewitnesses saw him crucified. They saw him resurrected. And if they were just making up history, if they were just making up history, then the New Testament is full of details that don't make sense. Women finding Jesus in the tomb. You don't report that in the ancient world. Women couldn't even testify in court. This would have undermined their testimony. If you're trying to start a movement a new religious movement around a few charismatic leaders. Why highlight how terrible they are? On every page of the Gospels, the apostles are constantly depicted as petty and jealous and arguing with each other and almost impossibly slow-witted. It doesn't inspire trust. You don't think, yeah, I'm going to follow these guys. Even the leader of the pack, Peter, is portrayed as denying Jesus and invoking a curse upon himself. The historian and scholar Richard Bauckham, who's just phenomenal, he reasons that no one would have dared recount what Peter said and did unless Peter himself was the source and authorized it. Unless Peter said, yeah, that's what I did. Go ahead and share it. It's the truth. You see, if you're trying to start a fake religious movement not based on historical fact, you don't build it on the testimony of women, center it around a bunch of failures, and you most certainly don't lay its foundation on a crucified leader. This would have only confused people in the first century context. Crucifixion was a sign of defeat, not victory. It was a sign of utter shame, not a person to build your life around. You see, all of these details and many more suggest that what we're reading in the Gospels and throughout the New Testament are eyewitness reports of what took place. They're preserving what they saw, what they experienced, and how they saw God show up. 
And so if we pay closer attention to the message, we see it doesn't really leave us much room for options. Jesus is either the son of God or he's not. This is either credible eyewitness testimony or it's a bunch of lies. You don't get a middle ground. But the author of Hebrews wants to push us further still. The message we've received isn't just ink on paper, it's a living message. As he writes in verse four, God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. What he's saying is it's not enough just to have an intellectual knowledge about what took place in history. You must experience it. And the author reminds the church that they firsthand have seen God show up in their midst. Sometimes God shows up and he works incredible miracles. People are healed on the spot. It happens. Sometimes he meets people with a surprising and overwhelming sense of peace and comfort where pain that they've been carrying in their life, emotional pain is gone in a moment. Some people describe moments where uh, people dress like they should work at a low-end restaurant or speaking to you and it's like you hear the voice of God through them. You don't hear the speaker, you hear the voice of God speaking to you, unveiling the secrets of your heart. Sometimes people describe when they hear God speaking, they're overwhelmed with a warmth of love that they can't explain. And whatever it may be, the living God is in our midst. When we proclaim Jesus, when we go to the eyewitness testimony, God shows up and he confirms the experience in our midst too. So you have the source, you have the witnesses, and you have the experience. Scholars say you have scripture, you have tradition, and you have experience. And the experience brings us into the story that's bigger than ourselves. This experience helps us see that we really are living in the truth. But don't miss what the author of Hebrews is trying to do in all of this. There is no other message which can save us. This is how God has spoken. This is it. Which brings us back to verse one. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we've heard, lest we drift away from it. I assume all of us here have had to cram for an exam at some point in our life. Anyone cramming right now? You're here. Get on you. Whether in high school, university, graduate school, You know, there's always a class or course that you put off for too long or a class that you have to take because it's required, but you don't really want to take and you're not interested in it. So you leave it to the last minute. And what do you do? You cram. Even though you know the studies show that you're only going to remember 80% of what you study when you cram, you do it anyways because you have no choice. The exam's on Monday. So what do you do? Crack open a Red Bull, take the notes out, review, watch some Netflix for a bit, try again, drink another Red Bull, read some more notes you know, pull a couple all-nighters, and then you pass, and you feel good about it, and then what do you do? You don't think about it again. You forget 80% of it. Many of us treat Christ this way. You've heard the message of the gospel. At least you think you've heard it and comprehended it. But you haven't given it much further thought. It's old news, been there, done that, studied it, passed the class. Let's return to the nautical theme once more. If you were taking a class on sailing, did you end up in the boat? 
Or did you study about the boat, learn about it in detail? The head stay, side stay, back stay, the bow pulpit, the spreader, or my favorite, the boom vang. Did you learn about it all, but never actually step into the boat? Do you see, it means very little if you can tell me all about the boat, but you've never been sailing. You might be able to write a great textbook about sailing, but you know nothing about sailing. It means even less if you can tell me about how you once studied all about boats and that you realized all these elements were important in their own way, but then you shelved it, you crammed, and you forgot about 80% of it. This is not the faith that saves. Yes, you must have an intellectual understanding of who Jesus is, but you must also know him, or more importantly, be known by him. Saving faith learns all about that Jesus has done, and it clings to him and experiences him and tends again and again to the fire of faith, to hearing the good news afresh. When you look at the specific words the author of Hebrews uses here for closer attention, there's a great intensity to them. He means you must become enthralled with the message of Jesus. It deserves your ultimate attention. Tim Keller says it, it's, uh, you must become furiously obsessed with the message. Because the gospel is never old news. It's always good news. The gospel is never old news. It's always good news. Ask yourself this question. If God spoke, would you listen? If someone said, hey, you can hear God speak, would you want to hear it? The author of Hebrews is reminding us to pay closer attention to the message of the gospel because God has spoken. You can hear what God has to say through his son. Let's try his advice on for size. What will we discover if we pay even closer attention to this text? What will we discover about Jesus that would make us enamored or enthralled or furiously obsessed with him? Look once more at verse 3. The author writes, how will we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? He doesn't write, how will we escape if we neglect such an okay salvation, an interesting salvation, a pretty good salvation? Of course not. That wouldn't warrant your full attention. Jesus has secured for us a great salvation. You're not going to find anything better, and you're not going to find it from anybody else or anything else. The author calls us to pay closer attention to an aspect of the message that we would prefer to neglect, an inconvenient truth. We cannot escape God's judgment unless Jesus delivers us. But that's precisely why God sent his son into the world. On the cross, Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus experiences hell. Silence and separation from the Father. He cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So that you will never have to cry that out for yourself. And this is how we're delivered. On the surface, the cross looks like utter defeat. In the ancient world, this was a reason to reject the message. Rome won, Jesus failed. But as the scholar Ellen Cherry writes, Christians believe that more is going on in these events than debacle. They read the story as good news. The wisdom of divine love is active at every step of the riveting drama. To grasp this is to begin the Christian journey into God. Hell is the most furious and awful reality we can conceive of. 
but its flames cannot match the fires of God's love for us. God has spoken to us in love. He sent his son to deliver us from everything that stands between us and his love. Jesus went to the depths of hell to demonstrate his love for us, which is why we say these ancient creeds that Jesus descended to the dead, or if you look at the original language, he descended to hell. And when you understand this, when you place your faith in Jesus and you realize that that's what he did for you, when the Spirit empowers you to know this truth and experience it, it enlivens you, it warms you, it excites you, it compels you. You'll want to pay closer and a closer attention to all the details about the good news of Jesus. Because you're not paying closer attention to a list of demands and rules and things you have to do to earn God's acceptance. You're paying closer and closer attention to everything Jesus has done for you. And you'll enjoy putting in that effort to keep fanning into flame the fires of faith. Because this is just one of the infinite things Jesus has done for you. And everything he has done, everything he has done, from walking on water to the garden in Gethsemane, everything he has done for us tells the story of God's profound love for us. So pay closer attention. Pay closer attention. 